Um, Hello, David. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> all good, man. All good. Um, how are you? Good, good, good. Good stuff. Um, Starboy. <laughs> uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about your your background? Um, yeah, sure. So, school, etc. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you know, my name is George, aka Kojo. Um, I grew up in Wembley, Northwest London. I went to schools in and around Northwest West London. Um, did my GCSEs and A levels in the same high school. Um, A levels I did were maths, history, and business studies. I got two A's and a B, which was what two thousand and ten. Yeah, quite a long time ago. I got two A's and a B. Um, then off the back of that, I went to Cas Business School. Did their banking and finance, and I graduated in twenty fourteen. And since graduation, I've been working at uh, Nomura. So I've been here for just over five years. Um, currently working in the investment banking space. Um, previously worked in finance, um, in product control, and various other roles in the grad scheme. Once things are grad scheme, I moved over to uh, banking, which was, yeah, two years ago. Exactly two years ago, actually. Once you finished your A-levels, you, you, you chose to study a finance, finance, um, finance degree. Yeah. Uh, what made you pick finance? Um, to be honest with you, whilst I was doing my A-levels, um, I actually study at the LSE library and I often see the Financial Times and you would see like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all these big banks on the front page and they're basically saying they get paid a lot. So I don't know, I kind of saw my education at that stage as a kind of return on investment. So if I'm going to go to uni, um, what sort of subjects is going to get me the, the highest salary? That's what I thought at the time. I know it might not be the best um, way to think, but for me, that's kind of, I think at any level, you need to have a level of determination and something to spur you on at that time. It was the fact that bankers got paid quite well. So I did a bit of research, looked into some roles, went to a few events, and um, I went to an event at City University and that was the only university I saw at the time that did banking and finance specifically. And yeah, from there I went to the event, spoke to some of the lecturers and it sounded like a quite a good degree, something quite interesting. So I applied and fortunately I got in and the rest is history. Um, I think, yeah, I wouldn't say going something that you hate because of the money, but I mean, it's, it's a, it was a way for me to have an interest in a, in a subject. Um, I was decent at maths, decent at business studies, you know, decent at economics. Um, but I think my strongest skill was probably history, but I just didn't see where that was going to take me, history. So I thought, go down the banking route and have a, um, like, a kind of career, I guess, a career which I could envisage at that stage. Uh, so a lot of students at the moment um, have just recently started university. Um, Good luck to you guys. <laughs> uh, so week and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Make yeah. the most of it. Well, this will go out after fresh week, I guess. Or oh, in the midst. Ooh. Yeah. So some yeah, units, yeah. some units have started. Some, some are just starting yeah. this week. Well, I hope you enjoyed. If not, it's coming up for you. Make sure you enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Network, meet people. You know, because fresh is a good way to. Because for me, even actually, my freshers week, I met loads of people, and to people I met weren't necessarily people I would initially 
warm to or people would actually would, would naturally um, gravitate towards. But these guys gave me the best advice. They were telling me, mate, I know it's your first few days, but if you're doing a banking degree, you want to be getting internships and work experience. So focus on that. Focus on that. There's lots of programs for first years. Like I came into our fund and being told now to find uh, some work experience. But you see, like it's very eye-opening and very helpful because they can help me with the process, understanding how to apply, what sort of events would be most useful for me, what companies to reach out to, like SEO and their recruitment. So I think especially with this, have a lot of fun, yes, but also think about your professional development during that time as well, because I always say your network is your net worth, right? People strive and do well based on information, you know? The more information you have, the better informed you are to make a, a good decision. So, um, yeah, I think make sure you expand your network and speak to as much people as possible in freshers. Reflecting on your experiences at university, uh, what would you do differently? Oh, yeah. Given that, given now my interests of my um, things I'm, I like to do outside of work, like traveling, I probably would have done a year abroad, but it was tough. I did a placement. So at the time, I was I was interested in doing a year abroad, but not passionate about it. I just had a, it was either a work experience or a year abroad. But um, in hindsight, I had quite a good relationship with my um, course directors and lecturers. So I could leverage that to perhaps do a six month internship and a six month study abroad. Um, that's one of the, the the most significant things I would have changed about my university experience, getting some international um, exposure because it's a good way to get to know a country really well by studying there because you actually live there rather than going on holidays for two, three weeks, right? It's doing holidays were different. But you're there as a student living there for six months, you're gonna get a real feel for the for the for the country and the culture there. So that would have been nice. Um in terms of everything else, I think I'm not sure as much I would have changed to be honest with you. I, I guess looking back now, I could have put some of my efforts into um, different spaces. So overworking on some subjects and not getting the grade I wanted, maybe I could have been a bit more efficient with my studies. Because to be honest with you, when I first started out, I was studying in the library probably between six to eight hours a day. I was in the library. Uh, in my first year, I got a 2-1. Second year, I got a 2-1. And then after doing my placement at Morgan Stanley, I kind of realised, damn, like once you start work, your time is very limited. At university, right? Your time is kind of growing. You have to go to lectures every day. You have to turn up. So you can be doing other things to build up your career or just other interests. So, for example, I could have... Um, I could have even... For example, I could have worked from a different country if I was like providing for an exam. I didn't have to be in London in the university library, right? I could be exploring another country and studying there for a few hours a day rather than doing nine hours a day and still getting your, your two one. You know, I could have been a bit more had a bit more fun in that sense. But also I could have also used that time to go to events or networking sessions or things like that. So I think the year abroad really helped me to Kind of focus a bit more on myself and be a bit more efficient. Um, post my placement at Morgan Stanley, I started going to the gym regularly, playing football, 
start traveling more, just more efficient, you know, get the work done and then try and enjoy yourself a bit or have a break rather than continuously working. So I remember even my dissertation, I finished that early, I had a first draft, I went to Miami for two weeks and they came back and submitted it and I got a first in that. But in all my previous stuff, I was getting two ones and no first. I got quite a high first in my dissertation. So, um, yeah, I kind of just learned basically it's not all about work, work, work. It's about working smart, which I think is quite important. It's quite important. So I guess, yeah, to answer your question, in a nutshell, I'd have probably worked smarter and also looked to get an international experience as a student. Uh, so for a lot of students at university, networking and I guess in a in a um, in a professional environment is quite a new thing for them. Uh, what what kind of advice suggestions would you give to, to those students? I think you just got to. You, first of all, you need to go to these events with purpose. Like I don't need to go and think. I don't do this session. What do I want to get out of it? Do I want to get his people's business cards. They want to find out something about the company, something about a specific role or job. So do that first. And then that's going to help you to kind of use your time at the event more um, efficiently. So there's 10 people uh, from a company at the event and they'll work in different areas. You kind of automatically pinpoint the one who works closely to the area you're interested in rather than just going there and talking to people who don't work and they're interested in and wasting yours and their time and then think at the end, oh, I wish I spoke to this person who actually works in that role. So it kind of helps you to make the most of the event if you kind of go prepared with what you want out of it. Um, in terms of approaching people and people being a bit nervous, um, I would just say, I guess, typically at the events, it's people that want to be there, right? People who go to these events, they've got the day jobs, so if they're at their end of got things to do outside of work. So if they're there at the event, then they want to be there. So that's an initial thing that should make you feel comfortable. Um, Cause there'll be friendly people, right? If they don't want to be there, then they wouldn't be there. This is all about volunteering. They're not getting paid to go to networking events with students, right? So if they're there, they generally care about students and helping them come through, uh, which I think is, is very good. So yeah, don't, don't, don't feel nervous. Um, and then maybe go with a friend, if that makes you feel more comfortable or a group of friends give you some comfort um, and speaking to, to new people. You mentioned that when you are doing your A-levels, you'd often go to the Edison Library. Uh, I'm assuming this isn't um, something the standard student necessarily does. So it, may, it, it sounds like um, you're quite a keen student during your A-levels. Um, um, I guess so. I wouldn't say so. I've done pretty... Well, I guess actually, looking back, probably flipping keen actually. My friends are all out playing football and going to cinema and watching EastEnders and stuff. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I guess so. Um, however, my well, what drove me was, I remember initially, I wasn't really the best student. I, I mean, I, I guess I was fairly bright, but I wasn't, I didn't know that I was fairly bright um, until my GCSEs. I got um, suspended for something really stupid. I can't remember what I did from school during my GCSEs and I had nothing to do. I was just at home before my exams. I was like, so I started studying. Literally two hours a day, I would just study. Just two hours, nothing. 
did my GCSEs and I came out with, I think, five A's and six B's. These times, teachers were telling me, my mum, my parents' evening, I'd be lucky to get a C in, in my English, and I got an A, two A's in English. So you can kind of see there's a bit of a gap there. But yeah, so I guess I was, I was inspired then, and I from then I kind of realised, okay, if I can set a bit of time to study. That's first time I actually start, started setting time to study. The first actual time I had a bit of a schedule before I get homework, maybe do it, maybe not do it, whatever. But here I was sitting down, scheduling two hours a day and getting through work. And from there, like I said, I got the five A's and six B's. For average, okay, maybe I can do something. Maybe go to college, do A-levels. So I decided to stay at the school and do A-levels. I use the same tactic, two hours a day, two hours a day, two hours a day. But obviously, A-levels are as easy as UCSEs. So um, doing two hours a day, two hours a day, two hours a day. And one of my friends, um, he used to go to LSE and study. So I tagged along, and this was in the summertime. So I tagged along just before the exams. And I came out with three Bs, a C and an E, an E in physics. So I thought, oh, okay, that's it's all right. It's all right. It's not the end of the world, but top unis want two A's and the B. This was like 22, sorry, this was 2008, 2009. So it still wasn't like A stars. They weren't available at that time. So it's two A's and a B. So I thought to myself, what about if I go to LSE every single day from the time I start my A2s? So the year after, if I can do all my exams again, go to LSE every single day and study every day, then boom, that time and effort should, should lead to better results, right? So I did that. So in my lunchtime break time, I'll be studying. Like I'm not sort of guy to, I'm not like a particularly studious person. That's the thing, I'm more of a people's person. So I wasn't really worried about, oh, losing friends or whatever, because I, I always had friends and I was, you know what I mean? I, I was always quite a personal, personable person. So that was fine. Like I still had my friends, I was still doing my mischief and having fun. But I just wanted to spend more of that time studying. And I guess it did pay off because in my A2s, I redid all my exams again. All the ones that I got lowered in it, A or B, and redid them all. And I finished that year with two A's and a B. And that's when I kind of realized, okay, fair enough. You know what I mean? I did fairly well. And that's kind of when I used that same tactic in uni early days. And it didn't really work because <laughs> there's a lot of textbooks at university. There's a lot, of, there's a lot more modules. And there's a lot more textbooks. So you can't really go through every single textbook. Right? You've got to be a bit more efficient. Um, you've got to pick out certain topics. You might cover 10 topics in a term, and only two come up. These times I'm there covering all 10 topics like a mug. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I guess that experience kind of taught me about efficiency. Like, the same efficiency doesn't work for each particular task. You've got to be flexible. That's what I learned when I went to Morgan Stanley. So, um, yeah, I guess it's just about spending your time in the right way. Um, and assessing, you spend your time, it doesn't work out for you, change something. If it's not working for you, there's no point in doing the same thing over and over again. So, what was the question? <laughs> well, the tangent, you can cut it, or do you want it to flow? Yeah, the flow is good. Yeah, there's a lot of things which are... Kind of like um, parallel, isn't it? There's a lot of things which are tacit, you know? The stuff that, that is there, but it's very difficult to pinpoint if you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And because the flow okay. helps to uncover those things. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So your time at university, uh, how did you feel spending that time at university uh, helped you in, in the way of uh, social mobility? 
What do you mean by social mobility in terms of like my my surroundings or more about like yeah I guess in terms of environments or yeah your perspective I guess mm. really good question actually that's a good question really good question because I grew up in Wembley right Wembley is quite a ethnic uh, part of London so I don't you don't typically come across a lot of white people you don't come across a lot of um, Western Europeans, um, it's mostly like, well, there's a lot of, I guess, immigrants um, around that part of London. And then I went to school in Oxbridge, which is West London, where I was a lot more white English based, which is quite funny. So I had a lot of white English friends, uh, which I didn't have a lot of in Wembley. Then I went to uni and blood, wow. All of a sudden, I've got friends from France, Germany, Sweden, Thailand, Russia. Oh, for me, that was mad eye-opening for me. That was crazy. Um, and it's funny, like, you go to a lecture room and they're always sitting in their little corners. So you have the French guys, the German guys, the Israelis. And I was walking, sitting next to any of them. And I was friends with pretty much everyone in my, on my course and probably even in my year at CAS. I was quite a popular chap for various reasons, mostly good reasons. Um, oh yeah, that's very interesting, man. Um, I remember that, I was just like, flipping hell. It's almost like I didn't know these people existed. Like, I never been in contact, it's crazy right saying that, but I've never really been in contact with somebody who is fresh from France or fresh from Germany, fresh from Sweden. So that was actually quite cool. I think that helped me to expand my, 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 my thinking. And my also obviously my um, my network, but definitely the way I see I saw myself and saw saw the world, and I think that's kind of what um, triggered my passion for traveling and seeing other parts of the world as a as a professional. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a shock, but something that I embraced. You know, I wanted to know more about these guys and their culture and the upbringing because social mobility is also about class as well right so a lot of these guys are parents are very wealthy you know their own companies and before they have no friends who their own companies or you know particularly wealthy parents um so that was quite cool man it's quite cool to be in that that environment and being an outlier you know i kind of use that to my advantage um i never saw it as a particular um, weakness, you know, I kind of saw that as a, as a strength, if anything, you know, it's a bit more rough than they were, brought up a bit differently, I was stale off my own back, you know, my mum didn't tell me to study all those hours, you know, my mum would be happy enough if I worked in McDonald's as a manager or whatever, she, you know, there's no pressure on me to go into finance or to have a career, so it's quite nice to have that sort of um, difference in cultures and class, like I'd say, helped me to learn more about the world and how the the, 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 the middle class and the, the rich folk go about their business, you know, it's different. So yeah, it was cool, it was cool, man. I think I, I navigated the world, you know, I made a lot of friends, made a lot of contacts, and that directly helps you into the working environment because someone like an investment bank is very diverse, right? You've got different, um, desks, 
different trading desks which are dedicated to specific regions. You've got different banking teams which cover uh, particular regions, you know, South Africa, Nordics, Germany, Iberia. So yeah, it was a nice transition, you know. There was no shock when I came to work. I kind of knew what to expect in that sense, having gone to business school. But I imagine having, if I came from a similar background as I had growing up and straight into banking, it would have been a huge culture shock, man. Huge culture shock. Because even, even in my um, my class, about 80 people in my banking class, and um, maybe like two or three black guys, and in total probably about seven, maybe up to 10 British people, including me and the black guys. So you can see that the, the class was very international, like English people were a minority. So, um, yeah, got to level up. Uh, so, I'm guessing during your time working um, in, in, in banking so far, yeah, you've seen where uh, a lot of interns will come in and not necessarily knowing some of the more established, but by and large unspoken rules um, within the firm in terms of manner of going about certain things. Um, what are some mistakes perhaps that you observe interns making and what, what kind of suggestions would you kind of give to them? Um, to be honest with you, I don't really, nowadays I'm not so close to the interns, right? I see them, speak to them, ask their names, ask the university, whatever, but I don't really socialize with them outside of work. And I remember when I was interning at, I think we'll see actually, here no more, there was an intern. <laughs> And uh, I think on the f in the first week, he went for drinks with his team. Drank so much, he got sick in front of them. So you can imagine the vision they had. And ever since then, he kept bringing it up, bringing it up, bringing it up. And when he finished the internship, he didn't get an offer. So that's kind of an obvious one, you know. Don't make yourself the focus of attention for the wrong reasons. You don't want to be in that space. And that's something to easily avoid, right? Why don't you get um, excessively drunk in front of your colleagues. It's not the best thing to do, is it? especially as an intern. So things are now easily avoidable. Um, trying to think what else, if anything else interesting happened during my internship. I think it's about respect. Overall, it's having respect, man. Respect people's time, respect your own time, respect yourself, and just understand that you're there to, to learn, really. So, um, might be some stuff that you don't like to do, but at the end of the day, you're there to learn, right? So try and think of the positive side of it, right? Uh, if you if it's a bad job and you do it really well, it's gonna make you look good. So I think any sort of title given, just make sure you do it in the best way you can. Cause that's gonna basically add brownie points to your end of intern bucket. And that bucket is kind of what is used to decide if you get an offer to come back or not. And I'll just add as well, um, in, to add to the respect thing, I've seen a few situations where interns have come in and they think that they're like smarter than people already at the firm, whatever. And that's fine to think that. It's fine. It's great. It's good. People like that. It's adding value and challenging the status quo. But there's a right way to do that, right? So if you are one of those people who 
are actually smarter than, um, or have ideas which you think are better, then it's important to portray that in the correct way. So you don't want to be like splurting and speaking to people outside the team and, you know, talking bad about your team doing this or that. And we've got this really, really good idea that the best thing to do in that situation is speak to the, the team member who's responsible for that particular process and flesh it out with them, you know. So just um, the improvements or the, the, the ideas that you think would benefit the team. And maybe it might be better to speak to your body or mentor first and they can help you to articulate yourself because maybe there's a particular way that that particular staff member um, likes to communicate. So, and they might know them better than you do. So um, you can give some insight into the best way to communicate that. So I think it's effective, yeah. Get advice, in thinking in general, in, 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 if, if, if you're ever confused or you're, you're stuck, you're not sure. There's a lot of people in, like, in the program to help you. There's a lot of, I, I know you get a mentor, you get a buddy, and there's the wider team as well. So never feel like you're on your own. If you're unsure about anything, you're gonna challenge somebody or something, just get advice. There's no harm in that, no harm. If, if you challenge it, if you if you speak to somebody and, tell, and they tell you that, oh, I understand what you're saying, but that's not really going to work, or you think you've kind of missed a point here. It's fair enough, right? It's fine. I think that if you challenge something and you're wrong, they would appreciate the fact that you're challenging things, you know? But let's not go challenging everything or things for no reason just to look good. But I think if you have a genuine sort of point to make, definitely make it. Definitely make it. And I kind of think um, as, as black people, Sometimes we kind of um, leave that side of us to outside of work. You know, we don't really want to appear confrontational, or we we don't want to appear aggressive or whatever. But I think it's important to be that side of you to work as well, because if you're on the training front, right, those guys they they are or they want to be aggressive. So why are we coming to work and leaving that side of our ourselves, our characters? outside of the office, bring it to the table and use that as a way to add value. Have you ever felt that uh, at work you've had to um, code switch uh, uh, being a black man working in the finance sector? Yeah, um, like I don't think I've purposely ever code switched, but I think naturally I have. Obviously there's things like do I speak outside of work is with my friends, it's different. Do I speak with my seniors at work? Because that's just, that's just a common sense thing to do. Um, as a person, I don't think I code switch. I think I'm the same person inside of work as I'm outside of work. Um, if you know me at work, you see me outside of work, you kind of understand who I am. I'm not a different person. Um, obviously, my my what I like to do outside of work is different to what I like to do at work. So that's just a, a standard line you draw. I, I don't think anyone can bring all themselves to work because you have interests outside of work that might clash with what you do at work, if that makes sense. So something like, you might have to party on the weekends every single night, you can't party during the week because you've got work. So that's a little example there. Um, some of us might be just discussions, so discussions about race. I discuss that a lot with a lot of my, my colleagues, my ethnic colleagues, but I might not discuss it as much with some of my my white colleagues, um, that could be part of it as well. And that's just because 
um, I guess I don't really like if if I don't feel you're aware about certain major issues, then I'm not really gonna bother spending my time to um, talk about events like you know you see in football recently there's been a lot of racist issues with Hume Sterling whatever. And I know people have seen it and they talk about it amongst themselves, and I'm there. I'm like, why would you ask me what my thoughts are? It's like they're scared to talk to me about it. They're like, if you don't want to talk to me about it, then I ain't going to talk to you. Do you know what I mean? So I guess that could be a part of it. Um, that's just me. That's just me personally. That's me personally. We're actually in the middle of setting up a um, a BAME society here at the Moor. So it's called Embrace. So hopefully that can help to educate anybody who's um, not so educated on, on ethnic minorities and race. Yeah. Uh, could you give us a bit of an insight into what your work tends to be like day to day? Um, yeah, so I work uh, as a business manager in the investment banking team, uh, specifically in advisory and coverage. So essentially I look after um, M&A, equity advisory, and then a bunch of um, industries and geographies. And we basically help the um, group heads of these teams to, to manage their business. So that's by providing um, pipeline analysis, you know, revenue analysis, um, looking at their client strategies, how they're targeting clients against particular KPIs. Um, and then we'll help pull together materials for global offsites uh, for senior management. So we work closely with the head of investment banking and um, provide him with a range of uh, management information. So it could be things like where bankers are spending their time and effort, how much meetings they're having, um, what their sort of client structures are. And then we also um, chair committees. So anytime there's a new deal coming into Lamar, a new M&A deal, as you go to committee to get um, approved. So we um, sit on that committee and um, kind of analyze each deal and the chair would come up with a approval or rejection based on the parameters which we outline if they're met or not. So things like minimum fees, uh, resources required. Obviously there's the basic things like conflict checks, make sure that the, the, the client we're working for is has been KYC'd and that there's no conflicts with any other things that we worked on at the same time. Um, there's a range of things we do. Um, we help with the creation of new projects and clients. So it's quite a um, dynamic role, which is why I like it, why I moved from my prior role in product control. But that role was quite um, autonomous, you know, kind of doing the same thing every day, looking at PLs, the month income, to do the balance sheet recs. We got a bit bored that this role is a lot more dynamic. Um, um, before you go on, um, what is um, KYC? Oh, KYC is know your client. So um, before you can transact with any new client, you have to be go through the KYC process. And that's where they check to see if the client is fit for purpose. So they make sure that the client is um, safe to transact with, safe to carry out the transaction. Yes, know your client. So all firms go through that. It's a basic sort of protocol, basic first step to um, onboarding 
and you apply it to the firm. Right, right, right. Doing your so due I'm, diligence. Yeah, exactly. I know you've heard about all these sort of Russian guys and um, other nationals who have been banned from um, trading their assets. The assets get frozen, right? So you carry C for things around that, uh, things around like illegal companies, um, dodgy companies, to make sure they've got the right structure in place. So you're talking about how you felt that you are quite suited to this role because of how dynamic it is. Yeah, it's very, it's very wide varied, you know, and it's close to the business. We're close to the bankers, um, and like every day is generally different. So there's always different uh, queries coming in, and uh, working with different people. So I, I like that. I like that side of my job. So yeah, it's quite it's quite unique. It's quite a unique role. If you saw the job advertised. You probably see it advertised as a CAO or business manager role, and you don't really see that as an internal grad. It's quite a very well, it's a very unique role. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't really see it advertised for like grads or interns. But once you do um, get a job in a bank, you can look out for it. And um, typically, they, it's an internal. The role is filled internally. So I got my job because someone left basically. So yeah, it's typically filled internally, um, and it's a small, quite a small team. Quite a small team. So there's uh there's various statistics. Um, I don't know. I don't have the exact figures to hand, but uh, concerning um, the filling of roles, oftentimes it happens through networking. Um, yeah, honestly, that's how I got my role. <laughs> so how I got my role, which I said to you at the start of this podcast that networking is key in all aspects so I used to work in the finance team um, within the banking space and um, I got to know my manager quite well during that role when I left because on the finance grad scheme you do rotations few rotations and one was in that team well it was in the finance part of the investment banking team so I got on with my manager when I left I asked him I told him if it all comes up and let me know I'll be keen to be part of your team. And a year and a half later, he emails me saying, I remember you said that, there's a welcome up, do you want it? So, perfect. So I spoke to him, had a few interviews with people I already knew from my time in that space, and yeah, I've got the job. So prime example, right, networking, if I, maybe if I didn't send that email, thank you, da -da -da. by the way, if anything come up, let me know. You may not even fault me. So, it's always good to um, ask. You don't ask, you don't get, right? So, one of your first internships, or at, uh, uh, I guess industrial placements, uh, was a role at Morgan Stanley as a product controller. Uh, what did that role consist of, I guess, to give people a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, sure. So, I was on the um, structured products uh, desk and um, I was there for a year on industrial placement, like you said, and I was basically assisting the process of PL production. So, as a product controller, you work closely with the traders, right? You're basically um, validating the firm's books and records on a daily basis, well, to a certain extent, on a daily basis. Then, at the end of the month, you would do the balance sheet reconciliations. 
So on a daily basis, you're working with the traders and verifying their PL, PL being profit and loss. And we do that on a T plus one basis. So for example, if the traders traded on Monday, you would verify Monday's PL on Tuesday. That's because markets close, um, FX prices are fixed. Right, if you did it during the day, the way things are moving, you couldn't do it because everything's moving. FX is moving, trades are moving. So it's best to take a snapshot. So we take a snapshot and do it the following day. So yeah, we work with traders to help them understand their PL and help the firm to verify their profit and loss. So also working closely with operations because if there's any issues, so if there's any breaks, for example, um, there's been a trade and it's been done in the wrong currency, for example, that would be a break and then we'll reach out to operations to get that break fixed. So essentially, it's just verifying the trader's P&L and ensuring that it's correct. Um, that's on a daily basis. Then a monthly basis, we would do the balance sheet reconciliation. That's making sure that everything we've got on our balance sheet, all our accruals, um, credit notes, etc., that they're all correct and accounted for. So we want to make sure that if auditors come into the firm and ask us uh, what's some balance sheet, we can show that we've got um, substantiation for that. So that that's like the, the the basic part of the job, right? But then also the traders have queries like, oh, could you please let me know how much was booked in this account in the last uh, three or four weeks, or can you help me design? I'm, I'm working this trading strategy. How much P do you think I could? generate if we did this or did that. So um, yeah, it, that, that's that, the, the bread and butter, but then there's also various other ways that, that the product controllers add value. So I think nowadays it's more of a business partner role rather than a like, back office. It's more business partner. We work more closely with the traders. And obviously now that a lot of costs are being cut, a lot of jobs are going, there's a lot less um, layers between the traders and the um, guys in finance. So it's, 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 good, it's a good place to be. You get to learn a lot about the products because you understand how to make P&L, you understand how to calculate certain returns, and then you also learn about some of the traders' strategies as well. So how they hedge their risk, how they hedge um, exposure to um, FX currencies, you know, what makes money, what loses money, and then you'll also be doing commentary for senior management and that helps you to understand, put the numbers to context. Because I'm going to tell you, yeah, I'm doing this FX swap off the back of an Aussie dollar hedge. And you're like, what the heck? And you get to learn about you know, these um, acronyms and various phrases you've heard at university and, and studied, but then seeing it actually applied in real life is quite interesting because it's quite different. You know, I often challenged my theory. I was like, what I learned in uni, that's not true, because that's not what these guys are doing. Theory said, you can't do this, but these guys just done this yesterday, so does that make sense? So um, yeah, it's a good way to kind of apply what you've studied to um, to real life. That's any internship really, right? It's any internship. But um, product control is probably one of the most technical roles within finance. So if you are technical, person but you don't want to go into a front office space then product control is good for you because you get that breadth of um, exposure.
plus you can sit with the traders and kind of chat with them and see what they're doing, see what they're up to. Um, I often did that. I was quite cool with my traders. I often go down and just chat to them, sit for an hour and just chat about life and a bit about work, about what they're doing, why they've done it, what they think is happening in the market. So um, yeah, it's dangerous in people to, to work with, for sure. Great, so that was, that was very, very insightful. Yeah, man, always. Um, how can people connect with you? Um, I would say you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I think my name and stuff will be um, on this podcast. So yeah, feel free to reach out um, you can message me, connect with me. Um, if you want to email me with anything um, specific, you can reach out to David who can give you my email address and I'd be happy to, to connect. Awesome. So yeah, um, hope it was useful. Um, anything you want to know further, yeah, feel free just to drop me a note and I'll come back to you. And yeah, all the best with life. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. Cool, no problem. Thanks for your time, mate.